0: Welcome to another episode of the Chef Educator, the show that provides and discusses various teaching tools, tips, and techniques for the culinary, hospitality, and pastry arts educator. And now, coming to you through the airways from Palm Beach County, Florida, here is your host, doctor, professor, and chef, Mr. Colin Roche. Welcome back to the Chef Educator podcast, the show where we explore the world of culinary education and share insights, tips, and strategies for teaching the next generation of chefs. I'm your host, Dr. Colin Roach, and in today's episode, we're going to be focusing in on how to facilitate an effective experiential active learning activity, including some suggestions on ways you can form your student groups quickly and efficiently in the classroom. So whether you're a seasoned educator or a new teacher, the goal of this episode is to provide you with practical tips to enhance collaboration and engagement among your students. So let's dive right in. Collaborative learning has been proven to enhance students' understanding, engagement, and overall learning outcomes, and small group work is a significant part of active learning. By working together in groups, students have the opportunity to engage ideas and discuss concepts and and support each other's growth. However, creating effective learning groups does require some thoughtful planning and implementation, and today I'm going to give you some strategies to help you form successful learning groups that foster a dynamic and conducive learning environment for your classroom. So let's start with the first step, planning. Before the class even begins, think about the objectives of the activity you have planned and the dynamics of your students. And what do you think is the best way to form the student groups? Now, it's important to form groups quickly and efficiently, and at the same time to vary the composition and even sometimes the size of the groups throughout the class. So there are three basic ways that groups are formed in my classes, and each has their pros and cons. Oftentimes, it comes down to the activity or the the length of time the group will be together, um, even the size of the groups I want formed. So here are the three ways that I do it. Number one is to let the students choose their own groups. And there's positives and negatives about this. I mean, empowering students with the freedom to choose their group members can boost motivation and engagement, and they, they like it, they get excited. And as teachers, we can just provide the guidelines, such as the group size limit, groups of three or groups of four, or form into groups of six, and the specific roles to be filled within each group. And then we just let the students pick their team. In theory, this strategy is supposed to encourage responsibility and accountability as the students become invested in the success of their chosen team. However, I think most of the time they just pick their friends which sometimes is okay. If I'm just doing a small activity and I want to do it quick, I'll say, okay, get in groups of two, pick anyone. I'm not going to pick the person that's sitting beside them. Most likely that's their friend. But other times, you know, especially for a uh, semester long group project or something, I don't want them picking. You know, I want to break them up. So it goes to number two. This is what I call purposeful pairing. Now, sometimes we may want to pair students in groups with students that have, you know, complementary strengths or, or contrasting viewpoints. Purposeful pairing by the teacher allows for more focused collaboration. For example, you could pair a strong writer with a skilled speaker, which can enhance communication skills. You know? And by strategically matching students based on their abilities or preferences, we can encourage the students to support and learn from one another. The issue with this method is that oftentimes we don't know our students' strengths or viewpoints, especially when a class is just starting. And if we haven't had the students in previous classes, we don't really know their background, their strengths, their weaknesses. This method can also take a long time. It may not be worth it for a quick one-time in-class activity. So I usually save this method or this strategy for larger class projects. It might take the entire semester to accomplish. I'm not going to think this through too much if I'm just doing a a 20-minute, you know, think pair share or exit strategy or something like that. Now, number three is random grouping. Random grouping is a simple and effective way to form groups, which often promotes diversity while encouraging students to work with different peers than they normally would if they got picked their own groups. I usually use this one. The randomness of it all takes the choosing out of it, as well as the blame. You know, they're not going to say, well, you picked the groups. That's why we didn't do well or something like that. It's like, no, this is random. So it's no one to blame. And there are many techniques that one can use to form the groups randomly. You know, there's, I'm going to talk about a couple of them, but there's famous ones out there, the colored stickers or numbered cards, or even now they have a digital randomizer tool that you can assign students to groups. You just plug in all their names and it just randomly picks them out. But to make it active and somewhat fun, I have other ways I use random grouping to form student groups. And these are kind of interesting alternatives, right? So the students kind of like, oh, they kind of like doing it this way. So number one would be grouping by, uh, I use index cards. So I determine how many students are in the class and how many different groupings I want. And then I code these groups using either colored dots, you know, you could do red and green and yellow, um, blue, you know, for four groups, or you could use, you know, five different colors, depending on how many groups you think you're going to want. And I'll just have these for each class. And then I'll say, oh, I want groups of three, you know, I'll use different, Uh, Of different colors. You can also use decorative stickers. You know, there's different stickers that you can buy out there. You can get some with maybe culinary themes on it, or you can get animal groups, you know, the lions and monkeys and elephants. And then when you hand these out, you say all the elephants go over here. Or you could just use a number, which is the easy way to do it. You don't need stickers, you don't need dots, you know, such as one through six, if you wanted six groups. And then randomly place a number or the colored dot or a theme sticker on a card for each student, and then include the card in the student's materials, you know, when you hand stuff out. When you're ready to form your groups, you just identify the code you're using and say, okay, everybody look down on the piece of paper I handed out or the copy of the syllabi that I gave you earlier today, and you'll see there's a colored dot or there's a number on it or there's a, an elephant or an animal or a culinary term. All the number twos go over here. And this way here, you know, they just look at it and they just know what they need to do. When you're ready to form your groups, again, identify that code, direct the students to join their group in a designated place. Students will be able to move quickly to their group, saving time and eliminating confusion. And to make this process even more efficient, you may want to post signs indicating group meeting areas. You know, you can, so you can and ahead of time, you might put a number one on the wall or a number two or put a sticker or a color over there and say, all oh, the blues go over to the left corner. You can also code student learning material, you know, using colored paper clips, colored handouts, or stickers on folders. So there's a lot of different ways you can be creative with this. Like if you're going to be handing out something and you know you're going to use groups sometime in that class, well, put that identifier on that handout. Again, whether it's a paperclip or a dot or a sticker, something, and you can just say that. Now, another way you can do it is finding similar subject matter lists or groups. It's kind of a take on the first one, but you create a list of subject matter topics in groups of three or four, depending on how big you want the groups to be. For example, you could have uh, Bermuda onion, Spanish onion, Valencia onion, and Pearl onions. You know, or mahi, mahi, cod, grouper, and swordfish. Something along those lines. And same thing as those colored dots or those numbers, you just put grouper or swordfish. And then you just say, um, all the students that are codfish go over here to this corner. You know, so it kind of keeps it with the theme, which kind of makes it kind of fun. So you just choose the same number of items or key terms as there are students in your class. Write the names on index cards, one on each card, create a family group of cards, Shuffle the cards, Give each student a card with a name or a key term on it. And when you're ready to form groups, you ask the students to find the other members of their groups. You know, once the group is complete, they can find a spot to congregate and get ready to do the activity. So it's pretty fast when you do this. And this can be done ahead of time. You could have a stack of going back to say, you know, the fish names. You could have Mahi Mahi, Cod Grouper. Swordfish, so snapper, uh, flounder, you know, as many as you think you want, right? So that's all the different groups. So you could have up to 10 groups. And then you just use as many as you need. Like, oh, I only want four groups. So you're just going to pick four of those. And if you need six, you pick six of those. So you could have those and they turn them in at the end and you can reuse them. Some people laminate them. And also, another way I've used this quick way is quick ways birthdays. You know, ask the students to line up by their birth date and then break into the number of groups you need for a particular activity, you know, for, and for larger groups, you could just do by birth months. Okay. If you were born in January, stand over here, February over here, or you can do it by dates, however you want it, but that's a quick one you can do. And yeah, it's usually pretty random because everybody's, you know, spread out on their birthdays. I've also used playing cards. You know, if I don't have any numbers, but I have a deck of cards, throw it in my briefcase, pull that out, deck of cards to designate groups. For example, use the Jacks, Queens, Kings, and Aces to create four groups of four. You know, so if I have 16 students in my class, I want to do four groups You know, I could do it that way. And then just, sh- you know, add additional numbers depending on the number of students that I need. You know, I can go down the nines, eight, sevens, whatever. And this is kind of fun because I can do it right in front of the students. I'll shuffle the cards up and say, oh, all right, we're going to pick groups and they'll see me. What are you doing? And then I just deal them out one card each student. And then they look at the card. Of course, and they start looking around. And then I direct students to locate the classmates with the same card to form a group. So I'll say, oh, go find your other three eights, if you have one of the eights, because it's four in a deck. Puzzles, puzzles I've used a couple of times, a little bit more pre-work here, but puzzles. You just go to the dollar store or someplace and purchase some children's jigsaw puzzles. And then you select the number of puzzles according to the number of groups you wanna create. So if I wanna create four groups, I'm gonna have four puzzles. And then I separate the puzzles. And I mix up the pieces and I give each student a puzzle piece. And when ready to form the groups, I instruct the students to locate those with the other pieces needed to complete a puzzle. And this one takes a little bit more longer time because you're not going to get to the activity right away because part of it is doing that puzzle. So they have to go over and find out what their puzzle fits or the color and then they find them. So if I have 10 pieces in a puzzle, I only want, f- you know, give out four pieces, then I just give out four and the other ones stay in the puzzle and they come over and they see that there's fit and that works great. So you can also use name tags. I don't really use this one uh, because I don't use name tags. These students already have them or it's on their jacket, but you could use this one. It'd be a good one for you. If you did hand out name tags, maybe you're doing a, uh, you know, a, a meeting or something. You create to use name tags of different shapes or colors to des- designate different group, you know, groupings. Then you just say, all oh, those with a round name tag, go to the left side of the room. Those with a square name tag, go to the right side of the room, or those with a blue name tag or green name tag. So you can use name tags. This is something you can do in advance. And so once you've determined how you're going to set up your groups, it's time to implement it in the classroom. Now, here are some tips to help you streamline that process and save valuable instructional time. Tip number one is clear instructions. So, start by clearly explaining the objectives of the group activity and the expectations for collaboration within the group. Provide guidelines on how to communicate effectively and establish deadlines for completing the task. When students understand the purpose and the structure of the activity, they are more likely to engage actively. In other words, like us, students like to know what is going to happen and why. Also, at this time, I like to sell the benefits of the activity I tell your students, explain why they are doing the activity and share how the activity connects with the other activities before it. And be sure to speak slowly when giving directions and make sure the instructions are understandable. You might also provide a visual backup. I like to sometimes have the steps or what the activity is going to be listed on a PowerPoint slides up on a screen behind me. And as I'm telling it, they can refer to the screen and then they get it visually as well as they can hear it. You know, they'll hear it auditory. Now, doing a demonstration on the activity beforehand can also sometimes help, especially if the directions are complicated. It lets the students see the activity in action before they do it. Sometimes you might want to do a demo. let see if it's something you know physical, like they have to build something out of, uh, say, pipe cleaners or cards or something. Maybe show them how they're supposed to do that. So you give them. You know, you tell them about it, see it on the screen visually, and then they actually see the demonstration of you doing it. This can be very helpful, again, depending on the activity. Tip number two, the physical arrangement. To facilitate quick and efficient group formation, you need to arrange your classroom in a way that allows students to move easily. Consider having designated gathering spots, as I've already mentioned, or using colored tape on the floor to show where the group areas are. And by removing these physical barriers, you encourage students to transition smoothly into their groups. That's why whenever I have my choice of the option, I always pick desks that have wheels on them. So that way they're, they're movable, depending on what activity or what I'm doing in my classrooms. You know, I can have them move, you know, into little pods. I can have them work, form into a circle if we want to have like a big discussion. Or I can have them do rows like a traditional classroom. So that really helps them on the wheels. We can just move them all to the side if we need the space to form our groups. But sometimes we don't have that option. We have to deal with what we have. Tip number three, seamless transition, I'll call this. And that's where divide the students into their groups before giving further directions. You know, once you've gone through, you've decided which way you're going to get the groups. You've picked them randomly or you let them choose. You have the groups. Let them get into their groups. You know, you explained how that's going to happen. They've done it. They're in their groups. So if you don't, students may forget the instructions while the groups are still being formed. So get them in the groups, then you go over the instructions for the activity. You can also inform the students at that time how much time they're going to have. Start by stating the time allocated for the entire activity, and then periodically announce how much time remains. Like to say, you know, okay, we're gonna do 15 minutes for this activity. And then while the activity is going, I give them little times along the way. Oh, five minutes left. Or right, you got two minutes left. Oh, one minute, start wrapping up. Smooth transitions are essential to maintain momentum and to minimize disruptions during that grouping process. You consider using different things for signaling. Like, you know, you can do a countdown as a signal. Uh, some people put this on their PowerPoint and they have a countdown, a timer going up there on the screen so they can look up at any time and see how much time. Or I've used chimes before. We use that. We ring the chime to tell when they're going to start or start, or they're going to change activities. Or you can come up with a specific phrase that you have to indicate when it's time for the groups to form or change activities or stop what they're doing, whatever that could be. Whatever it is, though, this helps the students, you know, helps grab that student's attention and signals that they need to wrap up their current task. You want to keep the activity moving, Don't slow things down by endlessly recording, you know, student contributions, say like on a flip chart, or you're trying to sure things and put it on a blackboard that slows it down. Let the process happen. And on the other hand, don't let the discussion drag on too long. That's why it helps to really monitor what's happening in the group. So when you see it start to lag, you know, it's time to wrap it up. Maybe you have to be a little bit earlier than you thought and be sure to challenge the students. There is more energy when activities create a moderate level of tension. So, you want that challenge in there. Not too difficult that they get frustrated, but you want it to be a little bit of a tension in there. And you don't want it to be too easy. If the tasks are simple, the students will get lethargic. They'll get bored and they won't finish. Okay, and the last tip I have for you regarding this topic is the wrap-up. I'll call this tip number four. Always discuss the activity at the end. When an activity has concluded, you want to invite the students, the groups to process that information and the feelings that they got and the learning that they got. What was what did the activity mean to them? And to share those insights and the learning that it contained with you in the class. You have to be careful about this because you don't want to run an activity right up to the end of class and then they leave without having this wrap up. Because this is really the most important part. This is the reflection part. This is where the true learning comes out and they process it. So carefully structure that that processing experience, especially the first time you do it. I like to guide the discussion. I only ask a few questions, but I'm guiding it. Like, what was the most important thing you learned, or how did it feel? And ask each of the students, or if you have, you know, big groups, maybe you have a spokesperson for each group and ask them to take a brief turn sharing their responses. You can even do this as part of the initial instructions where you say, okay, at the end, you're going to have to pick a spokesperson for each group and you're going to do a report out so we can hear what your experience was like. Okay. And there you have it. Experiential active learning activities. They can really help to make learning come alive. It's often far better for students to experience something rather than to hear it talked about. And by utilizing this effective grouping strategies we talked about and implementing smooth transitions and fostering that collaboration within the groups, you as the teacher can enhance the learning experiences for your students. Remember, forming groups quickly and efficiently not only encourages teamwork, but also cultivates essential skills like communication, problem solving, critical thinking, and get you right to that activity, which is in the reflection, which is where the learning is going to happen. All right, well, I hope you found these tips valuable and can apply them in your classroom. There are also many books out there that you could utilize as a reference to help you with this topic, as well as many other topics. One of them is the book I co-wrote titled Chef Educators Teaching Tools and Tips, which is published by Kendall Hunt. Another book that I have relied on heavily throughout the years, especially when it comes to this topic of active learning, is titled Active Learning, 101 Strategies to Teach Any Subject. That's by Mel Silberman. It's an old book, way, way back. I think it first published in 1996. However, it is still relevant today, and it's still available today. They can get it for used uh, $5 or so on Amazon. But anyway, I'm going to leave a link to both of these books in the show notes in the comments area below, so you can find those if you're interested in getting more information on these books, or if you want to purchase them. I'm also going to be creating several additional future podcast episodes specific to active learning. So I'm going to take them right from some of these books, and I'm going to share with you how I implemented those into my culinary and hospitality classrooms over the years. So stay tuned for that. There'll be more episodes on these topics coming out. Okay, that's it for today's episode of the Chef Educated Podcast. Hope you found this discussion on active learning valuable and that you're inspired to explore new ways of engaging your culinary students. If you have any questions or topics that you would like us to cover in future episodes, please reach out to us on our website or social media channels or even on our Google phone line. All right, until next time, keep learning, keep teaching, and keep cooking. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.